Come along with us as we explore the broad world of preservation and the work being done to preserve, interpret, and save our past in a 21st century world. From aquaculture to historic foodways to forensic modeling, we're talking weekly with experts from across the globe. This is your host, Nick Redding. Welcome to PreserveCast. So you're visiting New Orleans, maybe for an upcoming conference, and you want to get off the beaten path, out of the French Quarter, into the neighborhoods to experience the real, authentic cultural assets of this historic, over 300-year-old city. So where do you go and what do you do? Well, on this week's Preserve Cast, we're sitting down with Daniel Del Sol, the executive director of the Preservation Resource Center of New Orleans, and local developer and hotel owner, Natalie Jordy, to talk about an authentic New Orleans experience. All that and more on this week's PreserveCast. This is Nick Ritting, and you're listening to PreserveCast. And today, we're really excited to be talking with two individuals from New Orleans, and we're going to be talking all about authentic New Orleans and what that means. And this is part of a new series we're hoping to launch where we talk about different places uh, and authentic experiences you can have in those places as a tourist, as a traveler, um, and to get a chance to see them in a different light. Uh, and what better groups of people to tell us about authenticity than preservationists. And so, you know, when you think of places like New Orleans, you think of Mardi Gras and and jazz music and streetcars and, um, of course, historic structures um, and all the food that goes along with it. And, of course, Bourbon Street and all of that. Um, and that's exciting, but but perhaps you've done all of that and you want to know a little bit more about how to see these places authentically. And so our two guests today, Danielle Del Sol, who's the executive director of the Pres- Preservation Resource Center of New Orleans. Um, and then we are also joined by Natalie Jordy, who is the co-founder um, and owner of Hotel Peter and Paul, which is one of these authentic experiences and sort of a unique place that you can stay. Um, and before we jump into the conversation of sort of how you can uh, eat and drink and see your way authentically through a place like New Orleans, I thought maybe we would jump over to Natalie to give us a little bit of some insight to um, the site that she redeveloped. Um, and the story behind it and uh, how that can be an authentic experience if you're looking for a place to stay. And I have to say, this is not a, a long extended ad. We're receiving no uh, compensation for Natalie uh, to get her on here, although I understand from Danielle and others that it's a really cool place to stay. So Natalie, tell us a little bit about it. And uh, it's kind of a perhaps a good way to, to begin this conversation about authentic New Orleans. Great. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. So the Hotel Peter and Paul is a 71-room hotel and event space in a former Catholic church, rectory, uh, school, and convent in my neighborhood of New Orleans, which is just downriver from the French Quarter. It's called the Marigny, and it was the first neighborhood to develop in New Orleans after the French Quarter. And in my visits to New Orleans as a young person, I only ever stayed in the French Quarter, and the vast majority of people who visit New Orleans never leave the French Quarter. I heard the statistic once, I don't remember what it is, but I think it's like over 50%. And the French Quarter is very special, but there's so much more to New Orleans than that. And so it was a revelation to me when I first started spending time with my now husband, um, when we were just dating, who was living in the Marigny. And I was like, wow, it blew my mind. I was like, if I was living, if I was visiting New Orleans, this is where I would want to stay. This is, there's just so much more to, to New Orleans than meets the eye. And so that was really the vision when I first started thinking about doing a hotel in New Orleans, because at the time, and New Orleans has become a great hotel town, but at the time when I was, um, having this kind of idea, 
the offerings in New Orleans were these tiny little B&Bs in very charming neighborhoods with a real personal connection, but they were like two to five rooms. And on the flip side, you had the Hilton, the Sheraton, the Hyatt, these big boxes. And I felt like there was really missing, New Orleans was really missing that sweet spot that I look for when I travel of a hotel that has very high standards of design and service, but still feels like the place and is rooted in the place and has a story to tell about that place. So that was kind of what I wanted to um, offer. And and I wanted it to be in the Marini. And initially I was just looking at hotels that were like 20 to 25 rooms was what I felt I could manage and what I felt like I could afford. And then this property that we ended up with um, kind of became an opportunity and it was much more special than anything I had looked at previously, but it was also much more ambitious and large. So I partnered with Ash NYC, which is a, a hotel design and development firm out of New York City. And so we embarked on the process that has become now the Hotel Peter and Paul, which celebrates its fifth birthday on Monday, five years of development and now five years of being open. Wow. And, and what, a, what a five years it was for the hotel uh, industry. Nothing uh, exciting or interesting happened over those five yeah, years. Right. Totally stable. You yeah. know, <laughs> I'm sure the pro forma was exactly how you imagined it would be. Um, so, yeah. And so, I mean, what a give us a sense before we dive into all the rest of it, though, for people kind of interested, like, OK, so what is it like to stay in an old church um, or complex that is? But like, what is how did you find a way to, to fit hotel rooms into this thing. What is the experience like? Are you kind of, you're in the nooks and crannies of this cool building. I'm sure it's not, there's nothing cookie cutter about it. No, it's for four cool buildings with the bulk of the rooms, about 80% of the rooms are in the school building, which is quite large. It was a uh, kindergarten through eighth grade and it's laid out with a central corridor on each floor and seven or eight rooms on either side. So that's like 15 rooms per floor, about fit. We have 59 rooms in the school building. Then in the rectory next door, we have our bar and restaurant, uh, the Elysian bar on the ground floor and five guest rooms on top. That's a much smaller building. The church is enormous and there's no guest rooms in it. And we use it as an event space, doing everything from private events like weddings to public events like yoga, concerts, theater, fashion shows, graduations, AA meetings, political town halls, Almost every day we have, no, every day we have um, something happening in there. And then the convent is uh, also a residential scale um, building with seven guest rooms and a little um, shop in the front of the space. So um, the buildings are from the 1860s to 1900, and they're kind of a patchwork. You know, they, they tell the story of New Orleans development, right? One building at a time, the church first, the rectory next, then the Catholic school once the parish had acquired some critical mass. And then the convent was housing for the nuns that taught at the at the um, Catholic school. And it's right in the middle of this very residential neighborhood with just single family homes all around it. Uh, and and so it it's just kind of a little microcosm of one experience a person could have in New Orleans. And if somebody wants to stay there, they I mean, I guess to put a kind of bow on this, how do they how do they find you? Can they make a simple reservation online that's just just like going to any other hotel? But in this case, they go to uh, Hotel Peter and Paul. Yeah, um, our website is hotelpeterandpaul.com. And one thing that's been so interesting is that when we first opened, because we're not a big we, we're not flagged, you know, we're not a Marriott, we're not a um 
you know, Sheraton or whatever, we have to kind of generate our own business. And a lot of the ways that independent hotels do that is by signing on with online travel agencies like booking.com or Expedia. And so that was a pretty significant part of our business when we first opened. But we've been trying um, over the years to lower that because the Expedia traveler isn't someone who's seeking you out necessarily. They're you know, they're, they might be price shopping. They might not be like looking at, they might assume they're going to be in the French quarter and then be surprised when they show up. And, um, and so, yeah, our, our proportion of travelers coming through the online travel agencies has dropped significantly over time as we generate repeat business, as we create a name for ourselves. Last year in October, we were at 12% OTA business and we were, we were just like, you know, drinking champagne, like, this is amazing. We're so proud of ourselves. And this October, and we're at 4%. So obviously in the summer, we definitely have to lean on the OTAs a lot more because that's a, New Orleans' slow season and no one's coming here. But I'm just super proud that in high season, we're really able to kind of create our own um, community of people who want to come and stay here. Well, it sounds like we could do an entire episode just on this and maybe we will in the future because I think there's a lot of lessons for uh, people around the country trying to create authenticity and experiences and not just staying in um, well, we don't want to malign uh, some of the some of the hotel chains and the flags, but not to stay in a in a soulless box. Um, there's other ways to travel. Um, so, uh, speaking of authenticity, um, we have Danielle Del Sol with us, who um, just embodies the authenticity of New Orleans. She lives it, she breathes it, and she runs an amazing organization, the Preservation Resource Center of New Orleans. If you're a preservationist and you're not familiar with their work, you should be, you should be following them and they do amazing research. They also have a fantastic magazine, um, where if you like what you're hearing, you probably can get more of it, uh, on a regular basis. If you become a member and get the magazine, um, and we'll make sure we put a, a link in the show notes, not only to the hotel, Peter and Paul, but also to the Resource Center of New Orleans. But I um, have had Danielle, as many of you know, on previous. I think this is like your third episode. Um, so this is a this is the three-peat right now, the hat trick. Um, and previously, we've just talked about sort of preservation challenges in a place that is loved so much uh, as New Orleans. And then we talked about um, sort of a really scary threat to Bourbon Street. Um, and sort of dismantling of historic district uh, oversight. And then we were trading emails and I said, wouldn't it be cool if we just talked about the authenticity of New Orleans? And she emphatically dove into this and came up with some really cool ways of thinking about it. So, all right, we're coming to New Orleans as a friend here. And I want to know from you how we should be um, experiencing this place. And we're going to go back and forth, not only between Danielle, but also Natalie, since she has um, this rooted experience in the hotel. Um, perhaps one of the first places to talk would be, is it music? Is that is that where we begin our experience? Where are we going, Danielle? I think we should start by talking about why New Orleans is so special. Okay, because even better to music and that leads to food and that leads to all the things that you should experience. But the reason that we are the way we are is because this was a place that is such an incredible melting pot of culture and people. Um, and people know that we were originally a French city, um, but people may not realize that we were French and then Spanish and then French again. And then the Americans came. But then in the meantime, there were also, you know, we were the largest slave market in the United States for many years. So 
incredible tragedy, but also, um, you know, such rich culture coming from people from Africa, um, people from Caribbean, a huge um, uh, influx of people from Saint-Domingue, which is now, of course, Haiti, but these were free people of color. So we had a thriving population of free people of color pre-Civil War, which was not heard of, um, you know, in addition to so many slaves here in New Orleans. Um, and then we had Italians. So many people from Sicily immigrated to New Orleans. Um, Germans. We had, of course, Native Americans before the Europeans even showed up. Um, we had Acadians from French Canada that were brought down to Louisiana. Um, the Vietnamese. We have an enormous Vietnamese population here. Um, Latino. It's just this incredible uh, mix of people. The religions they brought, the culture that they brought. Um, has all blended together over the past three centuries um, to create this place that has, you know, intense culture and history born of tragedy, but also of so much joy. And so that is the very complicated place that we have today. And from a historic preservation standpoint, what that is geographically is 23 separate national register districts. Um, so like Natalie said, most of the people who come or everyone who comes spends some time in the French Quarter, so many of them never set foot outside of this one mile radius neighborhood. But there is so much to see beyond the French Quarter. Um, and and if you want authenticity, yes, in some ways and not to you know malign the French Quarter, but in some ways you you have to get out because the French Quarter has become a place that is. It, it operates for the benefit of tourists and there's amazing architecture there and there's amazing places to eat and drink and listen to music. But to experience it, I would presume like a local, probably most locals on a Friday night aren't rolling up on Bourbon Street, I'm guessing. No, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> and I also just want to pause real quick and say, I love that you kind of reframed it, uh, a good writer that we should be starting with the why. And I think that that's actually kind of a good little lesson here is that as you're approaching any place, what is the why of that place? Why does it exist the way it does? And perhaps is that a clue as to how you should experience it or the things that you should be looking for? Um, Cause I know like, I feel like I got some of the best Vietnamese food I've ever eaten in New Orleans, which I don't think I would have been looking for had I not known that that was like in advance reading and like, wow, that's really cool. And so you get this, you know, this fusion, as you're saying, of cultures, and that is part of the joy of New Orleans. Absolutely. That has created what is so distinct about our place architecturally, uh, you know, culinary scene and music. And Natalie, please jump in at any time. Um, I mean, if you want to talk about music, like that is something that we are known for with just excellence through the ages, you know, jazz essentially came from New Orleans. And that is in part because of our architecture. When you think about how hot it was, you know, people would sit out on their stoop trying to catch a breeze. People would be playing music out in the streets, sitting on their stoop, or people would be walking by. And really that's what, you know, jazz historians say led to the kind of improvisational, you know, growth of our, this American art form, which, you know, was made so popular with the jazz greats that came from New Orleans, um, Louis Armstrong, Louis Prima, the Marsalises in modern day, 
Um, and so many people, so many jazz musicians are able to still live and thrive here in New Orleans today, which I think is distinct for our city. Um, you know, maybe New York City is the only other place where you that is known for actually being able to um, have a thriving musician scene or people who can live and work afford to live at work. <laughs> yeah. And so Natalie, you know, to, to Daniel's point about getting your take on this, people come to your neighborhood. Um, where are you telling them to go and listen to music in your neighborhood? Well, the hotel is just, uh, one and a half blocks off Frenchman street, which is, a uh, strip of nightclubs essentially that have all different kinds of music we're also starting to see more and more development of music on St. Claude Avenue as St. as Frenchman Street becomes kind of bourbonized um, with just the passage of time, people discovering it, um, you know, rents going up, different club owners coming going in, et cetera. So, um, you know, my my personal favorite places to see music in town would be the Maple Leaf, Snug Harbor, DBA, um, Chickiwawa, you know places like that, the hi-ho lounge. I mean, the, one of, uh, there's a wonderful radio station in New Orleans called WWOZ.org, which you can stream around the world. And every odd hour they say, they like, they, they rattle off all of the live music that's happening that night. And it just is amazing to me how long that list is every single day of the year. You know, there's seasons for it, obviously, like around jazz fest, it can take, eight minutes or something for them to get through the list. And that wouldn't be the case on a Tuesday in August, but every night there are multiple places in town, dozens of places in town where you can go and see, as they say, live local music. I think that's really beautiful and special. Yeah. And it's just amazing that that persists. Right. I mean, and, 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 and that is the work, you know, it's interesting. We, Danielle, the preservation community talks a lot. Some might say wrings their hands a lot about how they're going to protect intangible cultural heritage and that is a big part of this, right? Like, how do you make sure that these things can persist? But that's not what we're here today to talk about. Well, well, Natalie's raised her hand, so maybe we will talk a little bit about that. But, you know, how do we create those environments for that to persist? Well, I was just going to say one thing, which, you know, touching on something that Danielle said, that New Orleans and New York City are probably the the best places in, in America, you know, that have a thriving kind of... Um, like native local music scene, but that is starting more and more to be threatened in New Orleans because of the affordability of housing. It is really hard more and more for musicians to be able to afford to live in the city. And, uh, and that's a problem we're going to have to solve if we want to keep that local culture. And so I think that's one of the interesting tensions in preservation is like, how do you preserve what's special in a city in terms of the architecture um, and the historic values while still making it possible for an environment to, you know, for people to thrive in that environment. And sometimes that does require adaptation and change. So how do you, how do you maintain that balance of, of, of preservation and evolution? How does, how is evolution a part of preservation? Yeah. Evolution, not revolution, right? That's the, that's the goal. Um, so Okay, so we're 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 listening to live music, um, and I'm I'm curious. Um, you know, you were you were saying that um, you wouldn't go down to you know as a, as a local, you probably wouldn't find yourself on on Bourbon Street on a Friday night. Um, we asked Natalie where she would go. Danielle, where would you go? 
Um, I, I echo Natalie. I, I'm a pretty purist when it comes to modern jazz. So I love Snug Harbor. That's on Frenchman street. Um, if you're into traditional jazz, which other people around the country might know more as like ragtime music, but that's really early jazz. And there is a thriving traditional jazz scene here in new Orleans and preservation hall is, um, it's in the French quarter, but it is this really amazing jazz club that was started in the sixties by the Jaffrey family, and they were dedicated to preserving this as an art form and helping musicians who were dedicated to traditional jazz music be able to afford to live. And so um, for decades now, um, this this um, club has operated and it's now run by the couple's son, Ben. Um, and it's an amazing place, uh, really intimate to see live jazz. Um, so I definitely recommend that. Um, Going uptown, there's a bar near my house called Le Bonton, where there are really fun, raucous um, brass bands that play every week. And so that's like a really fun um, thing. That I bet a lot of Tulane students or Loyola students can find themselves there on any given weeknight. Um, but brass brass band music is also something that kind of grew out of jazz in later years and is really just a joyful, um, popular music type here in New Orleans. Um, and then I'm really excited for this one uh, project that's about to go live. And it's really notable as like one of the most exciting historic preservation projects happening right now in New Orleans, which is the renovation of the Dew Drop In, which is a music club that was in Central City. And a lot of people might not know this, but New Orleans was the hub of early rock and roll music. I mean, it was called R&B. And but like, you know. Fats Domino was from New Orleans um, and people like Little Richard, Chuck Berry, like these, these early rock musicians really honed their craft and created this music that went on to influence everyone in later rock and roll, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones. I mean, they all looked to these musicians um, and were inspired by them. And this club, the Do Drop In, was a hub for this R&B music in um, you know, around the civil rights era. And it was a fascinating place because the owner refused to comply with segregation in the era of Jim Crow. And so he would repeatedly get arrested because he would allow both black and white musicians to play and black and white uh, people to come frequent his club. And that was not allowed. And so interestingly, um, when deset when segregation was you know made legal essentially and actually enforced in the south the do drop in closed because everyone could go anywhere in theory and this was no longer a place where people could come and congregate together racially and so um it sat vacant for decades and is now coming back to life as a live music venue and hotel and um it's in the central city national register district and it's just i'm really excited about um, that as a cultural offering, um, once again. Well, that's perfect. I'm, I'm curious as we're talking about music, we're about to move to food. You know, I did say sort of in the intro, like people think of Mardi Gras. Is there a way to authentically experience Mardi Gras? Yes. Yes, absolutely. All right. Because I don't, I, I'm not asking, that's not a loaded question. Like I, in my mind, it's like something that just happens on Bourbon Street, but I oh guess it's at a Bourbon Street on Mardi Gras. Unless, <laughs> okay. So Natalie, let me answer this really quickly and then I want to hear you. Um, the things that, that you need to think about is if you, Mardi Gras is not actually one day. Mardi Gras is two full weeks of parades and balls and parties 
leading up to actual Fat Tuesday. So if you come before actual Fat Tuesday in that time, you need to go uptown to see parades on St. Charles Avenue. And they are absolutely amazing. They are, they call, what is it that they call it, Natalie? Like the biggest free party in the world or something like that. It's a blast. There are beautiful, beautiful floats created by artisans who work on them all year round. Um, all of the regional high school bands play incredible music and dance. There's dancing troops. It's just an absolute blast. And there are dozens of parades in the two weeks leading up to Mardi Gras. And then on Mardi Gras Day, people experience it in all different ways. But my personal favorite is to go down to Natalie's neighborhood um, and participate in the St. Anne Parade. And people dress up and you will see the most creative costumes and so much glitter and bubbles. And it is just an incredibly joyful experience where people make music on the streets and dance and march all through the Marigny and then the, through the French Quarter. It's a lot of fun. Natalie, you have anything to add to that? I have so much to add to that. Yeah, for <laughs> me, March has six weeks, not two weeks. Starts okay. on January 6th with Joan of Arc Parade. And there's stuff every weekend right. in the different neighborhoods. And, um, you know, while the kind of famous picture of Mardi Gras is the beads and boobs and beer on Bourbon Street, which actually is a part of my Mardi Gras because I live very close to that. And so I do end up just like, like keeping an eye on that. Um, every neighborhood has its own celebration of Mardi Gras in terms of the parades that go through it. A lot of them are foot parades with handmade throws. Um, you know, there's black masking Indians there's skull and bones. I mean, all these things are just words to people who've never heard them before, but you know, you can go down Google rabbit holes and see uh, this deep kind of cultural production that is, that is oftentimes not for outsiders. It's just something people are proud of having in their neighborhoods and maintaining. Um, you know, one thing that I'm a part of in my neighborhood is the red beans parade where everybody makes a parade, a, a costume, excuse me, out of beans. And the traditional day for parading is, um, Lundi Gras, the day before Mardi Gras, that's through the Marigny. And it's just hundreds of people head to dough costumes made of beans that are hot glue gunned onto their bodies. I mean, onto something that is on their bodies, not onto their actual skin. <laughs> um, and it's just like a very joyous celebration of, of New Orleans culture, whatever that might mean. I, I'm glad I asked this question. I didn't even think of it before we kind of got talking, but I was like, I think a lot of people are like, oh, it'd be fun to go for that, but I don't want to be. And so it's good to know that it's, it's this long experience. It's a season. It's not one one particular day. Um, friendly, people think it's like R-rated, but actually, you know, I take my kids to Mardi Gras parades uptown, Mardi Gras parades downtown, French Quarter on Mardi Gras day. Like it's, you know, there's house parties, there's people making red beans and rice or gumbo. There's, um, you know, there's yeah, just homemade costumes. Like people are doing interesting things with waste reduction, like making things out of trash. Cause that's one of the problems with Mardi Gras actually is quite wasteful. We, we ship in like a ton of plastic beads from China or whatever that end up, you know, in the, in the sewers or whatever. So, um, I feel like that's an interesting movement to reduce, um, kind of trash and waste around Mardi Gras. And so people are getting, you know, really making really beautiful costumes out of basically trash and just showing these alternate paths forward for the for the traditions. Well, this is fascinating. I was going to say, Daniel, is this like a good segue to food? Because we were talking about 
gumbo and red beans and rice and there's food. It seems like it's imbued in every, I grew up in Buffalo and like, obviously you couldn't probably get more different from New Orleans than Buffalo, New York. Um, the two extremes of the ends of the country. Um, but because it was so cold there, everything was always around food. Like it was, it was a way to warm up and gather. So food is just like always seems like it's always central to any culture. And you have so many cultures all swirling around. How do you even make heads and tails of where to authentically eat? And that is just, I mean, uh, it's just really hard to crack that nut because like with the Mardi Gras traditions and Natalie, you really did such a better job than me. Thank you for all that extra context. Um, it is neighborhood by neighborhood. I mean, there are incredible experiences in every neighborhood. And I think that's kind of the main takeaway is that really like the stuff that's embedded in these historic neighborhoods are going to be 50 times better than, um, you know, anything chain that might purport to be an authentic New Orleans meal. (laughs) Um, but I think that, you know, there's some, there's classic dishes and classic restaurants that you'll want to try. Um, And I mean, Natalie, could you talk a little bit about that? Um, Yeah, I can talk a lot of, that's another thing I can talk about. (laughs) Like the, one of the reasons I fell in love with New Orleans from the, you know, first moment I started spending time here as an adult is because I, my then boyfriend, um, now husband was the restaurant critic at the local newspaper (laughs) for about 20 years. And so, um, it just made it so easy to fall in love with the city through its restaurants. Um, and you know, we went out to eat six nights a week for the first, I don't know, seven years or so that we were together before we had kids and had to kind of like slow that down. Can we Um, just, can we just pause there and just, just like savor that talking about food, eating out that much in New Orleans, you have probably eaten, I mean, with you and your husband and, and more places than than most in New Orleans, I would imagine. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is that New Orleans is a town where people like to eat out. And so, yeah, he did it for a living and I was often with him and we did eat out a lot, but there are quite a few people in town, obviously barring COVID that was very disruptive. And we can talk about that or maybe not talk about it, but, (laughs) um, New Orleans is a town where people like to go out. They like to go out and eat. And, and there are a lot of people in this town and you get to know them if you eat out a lot because you see them everywhere who are just constantly eating out. And I think that's one of the reasons Orleans has such a vibrant restaurant culture is that it has a tourist economy, but that's not the only people going to restaurants. Local people go out to restaurants. And I think that's, yeah, that's one of the reasons it's such a great town to eat in. So Danielle, some specifics if people are listening and they're they're taking notes here, where where are we sending them? You got to go all over town. Okay. Um, that's fine. And- you need so, and remember that we're right on the Gulf of Mexico. So we have incredible seafood here in New Orleans, which is like the basis of so much of our, like the great dishes in New Orleans. And so, you know, if you're in the French Quarter, you're going to go to Galatoire's or Brennan's or the Napoleon House or one of these um, classic New Orleans restaurants that have been here or Antoine's, you know, that have been here for a hundred years and are great, you know, really historic. Um and there's also really fun renovations. There's a developer in town named Neil uh, Bodenheimer who's done cool uh, adaptive reuse projects around the city. And he's got this restaurant called Canaan Table in the French Quarter that was actually um, a the building in the late 1700s was an infirmary 
operated by Ursuline nuns for people with venereal diseases. So there's just whole amazing backstories to so many of these restaurants on like what they originally were. But, um, you know, you can go out of the French Quarter, you can go up the Lafitte Greenway, which is a path that links the French Quarter and it goes through the city all the way up um, to near Lake Pontchartrain. And you can stop in mid-city on Bayou St. John and get a po'boy at Parkway Po'boys. That is, you know, a, a New Orleans style sandwich. I don't really know how else better to describe that, but, you know, you can have fried seafood, you know, fried shrimp or oyster po'boy. You can have uh, roast beef with debris. I mean, just amazingly fancy or very simple po'boys, but those are kind of a must do. Um, the Treme neighborhood has incredible soul food, you know, going to Dookie Chase restaurant or Willie Mae Scotch House, those are absolute must-dos um, when you are in New Orleans. Um, like we mentioned, Vietnamese food, there's incredible Vietnamese food, some in New Orleans and some across the river, the Mississippi from New Orleans, uh, that, that area is called the West Bank, and there's incredible Vietnamese on the West Bank. Um, if you're staying in, you know, New Orleans historic neighborhoods, um, the Lower Garden District has a restaurant called Lily's Cafe, that's really amazing. Um, for Vietnamese food. Um, I, I, I'm not to like plug Natalie even more, but I really love the Elysian Bar, which is her uh, restaurant and bar. Phenomenal cocktails, but then the atmosphere is just spectacular because you can either sit in the historic church that she talked about, or you can sit in the courtyard between the restaurant, the interior restaurant and the church. And then the, at night, the stained glass of the church is lit, is lit up. So you have like a wall of glowing stained glass behind you as you as you eat so so much about the experience with eating out and I think the reason that kind of touches on like why so many residents eat out so much is like there's so much joy not only in the delicious food that we have here but also the atmosphere and the experience of going you know especially restaurants and historic buildings you know this is about the food but it's about the ambiance and the environment around you and the people you see out, like Natalie said, it's a, it's a small community of people and you know so many people when you go out. But um, And there's this there's this this tradition of it too. It's interesting. Like, you know, certain parts of the country there wasn't that tradition of restaurants. I mean, this is like sort of where like you sort of get the sense that that's where restaurant culture in some ways, the the way we understand it today is sort of a, a creation of what took place there and in other places, of course, as well. Um, but you know, there, there's this longstanding tradition, like you said, you have a hundred year old places and then places that have been there, you know, just a handful of years. Um, I'm curious. So we've talked about music. We've talked about food. Um, we haven't talked about like bars in particular, like just places, I guess, to go and have a drink. So I guess maybe we're putting the nightcap on this experience where, where are we going to grab a drink? And I imagine it's not going to be a foot long thing of some type of daiquiri. I'm guessing it's going to be uh, some, something uh, slightly more authentic to the experience of New Orleans. So where is that? Well, let me make a comment about that, actually, because I used to think that everything on Bourbon Street was kind of gross and mass produced. And I've kind of come around to that, particularly after reading geographer Richard Campanella's book on Bourbon Street, which helped me to appreciate that actually that is an expression of authentic New Orleans culture too. A lot of those bars are locally owned. Um, a lot of those drinks have become kind of part of New Orleans culture for better or for worse. You know, we might want to like ignore it, but actually to a lot of people who come to New Orleans, that is like a, what you do in New Orleans, what you drink in That's New true. Orleans. And those 
cocktails are arguably just as classic as a Sazerac or a Ramushin Fizz or something like that. And, um, and like, I, 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 I feel like that's one of the things I love about New Orleans is that it's like not a very judgy place. And you can have a good time in a fancy cocktail bar. And you can also have a good time on Bourbon Street getting a shark attack or getting a big ass, what are they called? Big ass beers, giant ass beers. They're, they're actually like, you know, two feet tall or something like that. That's why they're called that. Um, um, or a hurricane or whatever they are. I think it's a really good point. I think it's interesting. You know, the, sometimes we think of authenticity as just things that were older or that were there before there was mass production or, or, um, you know, mass visitation, but those things have been there so long now themselves that they, they too sort of like uh, brutalist architecture. You have to come around on it. Right, Danielle. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> and shag rugs. I mean, we're going to be saving those before you know it. I mean, it's going to happen. Um, so, uh, all right. So we've had a big ass beer, but where else are we, where else are we going to grab to drink? So New Orleans has an amazing um, culture of classic cocktails. Places to get those might include uh, in the French Quarter, for example, Arno's French 75 Bar and Jewel of the South, where you can get an incredible, um, let's see, I can't remember what the name of the, um, the name escapes me right now. It's got like that sugar rim, but also French 75s. Um, The Sazerac Bar, the Carousel Bar, Manolito has great daiquiris, Cane and Table, which Danielle um, recommended. Um, but then farther afield, New Orleans is a town of fantastic neighborhood bars. Um, there's uh, lots of new local breweries that are opening up, as well as older breweries that have been around for ages. And uh, and then, of course, we also have bars that are doing trendy things like natural wine. And I feel like our bars here are really stepping up their game with that kind of thing. So um, you can go to Bacchanal and drink fantastic wine in, you know, a rusty old patio with amazing oak trees and live jazz music. I mean, there there are so many places to drink in this town. And I think that's one of the reasons people like to come here. And that's definitely one of the reasons I enjoy spending time here. I, I've been fascinated by the breweries that have been opening because this is not, this was not a beer town. This was a cocktail town. And so you know, unless like you just have to try all the beer, I, you know, if you only have a few days, go for all the cocktails, try all the cocktails because there's just so many good ones and there's so much good rum and that sort of thing here. That, that might, I'm joking, but that might be the, uh, the headline for, uh, for this, uh, this episode, try all the cocktails says Daniel. <laughs> um, maybe that could be in the airport. Uh, you could like let people know as they come here. Um, so we could spend so much time. We got to bring this to a conclusion at some point here. Um, we didn't even get into, and maybe we can talk a little bit about sort of just like experiences beyond food, drink, and liquor, which is, and music. But you know, there are a multitude of really cool museums that, if you go a little bit further afield from, um, you know, where you know so many people you know, that one mile square radius around the French Quarter. Um, there are other sort of experiences that people might want to take in. I know I've been to the World War II Museum. I know you had that on your list of like really cool experiences. I thought that was fascinating and the Higgins boats and and that whole story there. And I've also been to, and it's a previous episode, the Museum of Southern Food and Beverage, um, which you can go back in the PreserveCast archives and and find that episode where we interview the executive director there. But other sort of standouts before we kind of 
conclude here. Natalie, what do you got? So this is something I think about a lot because I sort of feel responsible for guests who come to the hotel and, and want to know what to do in New Orleans. And there's two things I think are are really important for people to understand to, in order to understand this place. I really recommend um, Laura Plantation and Whitney Plantation, which are plantations on the River Road that um, that take an unvarnished view of the history of those of those of those farms, rather than focusing on the furniture or the clothing of the people in the big house. They they look at it from the perspective of the enslaved people, and um, and I just think it's a much more balanced approach. And then the other thing I recommend um, is a swamp tour with a company like Beyond the Bayou or Lost Lands, because rather than feeding alligators marshmallows off a stick, they will talk about, um, you know, the balance of the ecosystems, coastal erosion, and, and really take people through and help them understand the change in climate. I mean, here in Louisiana, we're on the front lines of climate change. We see that with every hurricane that comes by. Um, we're more and more at risk of coastal erosion, sea level rise, um, in climate impacts from hurricanes. And um, and so I, I think if people want to preserve New Orleans and continue to have it as a place, you know, that upholds American um, industry and American culture, we also need to understand um, how to preserve it. I mean, this is a podcast about preservation, right? It's not just buildings. It's also about the natural environment that's going to keep us here for another 300 years. Great ideas. Love it. And Whitney was amazing. I've been to Whitney and Laura um, and uh, can't say enough good things about either of those and what what an eye-opening experience those places were. Um, Danielle, what do you got? Uh, I'd recommend the Free People of Color Museum on Esplanade Avenue. It is unbelievable. It's an an incredible historic mansion, um, but it really tells the story of free people of color of New Orleans and the incredible way that they set the scene for so much of the future of the city um, and the incredible accomplishments, despite the, you know, racism and difficult, so many difficulties that they faced um, uh, as a community of people. So that's an incredible experience to have. And then, you know, there's so many art museums and incredible things that it could just go down the list, but I just say like getting into our stored neighborhoods and seeing our city as a living museum, like just walking down the streets, and trying to experience the architecture and the culture. Um, and there's any number of tour companies. One's, one of the ones that we really love is NOLA Tours. Um, they go through, you know, the Marigny, the Garden District, some of our historic districts um, with an eye towards architecture um, and history. And, um, you know, just getting out and walking around and experiencing as much of the city as you can um, while you're here. I think that might be like the best place to leave the conversation because, it's, you know, we started with why and we made our way through all the different ways of experiencing the result of why. And then we end with really the best way to do all of this is get out on foot or, to, or trolley or, or however you're going to see it and go out to the neighborhoods and see them firsthand because you'll probably get a better sense for the why that way. And you'll run across things in an authentic and sort of natural way in that You'll see that corner bar that Natalie was talking about, or you'll run into a cool new museum or, or an art museum or a store um, and be able to kind of experience that. And I guess that's the big takeaway is that there are so many different ways to experience New Orleans, uh, whether that be and it's OK if you want to experience it through the big ass beer 
or you want to go and see the Garden District or the Marini or all these other places that we talked about. What a cool conversation. Um, we could probably do five more of these. Maybe Danielle will launch her own podcast called Authentic New Orleans, and she'll just talk about it every week. Uh, we'll <laughs> talk to her about that. But this has been so much fun. Natalie and Danielle, it has been so much fun to talk with both of you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to preservecast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.